Today's guest is Tim Hogaboom. He is a hiker man, and I'm his secret admirer. Today's guest is Tim Hogaboom. He is hiker man, and I his secret admirer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cafe Ribbit Podcast. As you heard me sing, Tim Hogaboom is today's guest. I'm talking with Tim today about his documentary film called North to Katahdin, which covers his 2,100-mile-long Appalachian Trail journey from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to the summit of Mount Katahdin in north-central Maine. Tim and I talked about the psychological experience of hiking the AT while also documenting it to create a piece of art. He also shares how the hike influenced his ability to trust himself, and that both he and my dad celebrate springtime by plunging their faces into flowers. You can watch the full 28-minute film on the Cafe Ribbit blog post, which I linked in the podcast description. On the blog post, you can also find the book that I mentioned called Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. If you enjoy the interview, please take the time to write a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to start off by reading your YouTube description of the North to Katahdin uh, history. Is that okay with you? Oh yeah, sure. All right. North to Katahdin unveils the mountains, wildlife, and natural beauty of the world-famous Appalachian Trail a 2,100-mile footpath that spans the length of the Appalachian mountain chain. 28 minutes in length, this award-winning film focuses on the AT through the eyes of seven hikers attempting to hike from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to the hauntingly beautiful Mount Katahdin in north-central Maine. North to Katahdin is a tapestry of moments, moments of ultimate challenge, transcendent beauty, high triumph, and quiet reflection. What the viewer gets is 100% trail footage, filmed at over 200 locations along the entire Appalachian Trail. Film festival director John Columbus called North to Katahdin a shimmering portrait of the journey. To capture this unique vision of the Appalachian Trail on film, cinematographer Thomas Hogaboom hiked the entire length of the trail in 1984 with professional 16mm camera equipment, then returned to seven states for additional footage, including aerials, in 1985. This is the earliest known footage ever shot for a documentary on the AT. Post-production, including film editing, sound editing, and the like, lasted until 1992, when North to Katahdin was released. It has since been seen by an estimated 20 million viewers. So, what months did you start and finish the trail? I started in April of 1984 and finished six months later in October. Okay. Um, right at the at the height of uh, uh, foliage season in Maine, peak foliage. And in a way, you recently re-released North to Katahdin because... Now it's available on YouTube, and 
Vermont Public Television also aired it on September 2nd. So in this new phase of distributing the film, what do you appreciate about it that maybe you didn't notice or weren't satisfied with during the eight plus year editing process? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that um, Vermont Public Television left on the tail end of the film, uh, there's a, some print comes up that uh, mentions that you can order a VHS copy of the film <laughs> um, by writing to this address. And of course, uh, VHS has gone by the boards in the intervening years and there basically are no more VHS tapes available. So I was, I was kind of hoping that Vermont television would delete that last segment, <laughs> but for some reason they left it in and maybe because it, it, it just, shows you or, or it's kind of a comical um, element to to show how much technology has changed in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you have that little tidbit of the past is something you appreciate now? Yeah, and I'm kind of reminded that the technology on the trail has changed things quite a bit as well. Mm. Um, Back in 1984, when I started shooting the film, there were there were no cell phones out there. Um, virtually, the only electronics were um, some some music earbuds that people might wear for boring sections. Mm-hmm. And these these days, everybody has a cell phone. They're connected to not only uh, their loved ones at home, but they can call a a pizza joint and have (laughs) pizza delivered to a trailhead Uh uh, in virtually every state. Um, And they can connect with each other. And, you know, I've seen hikers in more recent days sitting around tables, uh, just hunting and pecking at their own devices rather than having a conversation, which was about the only entertainment we had back in 1984. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely evident as you interview the hikers throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So when I started first getting really into photography, I was in high school using my dad's old film camera and I really loved the experience of looking at the world through a viewfinder because it narrowed my focus to pay attention to one thing, whether it was a piece of trash on the ground, a certain house in my neighborhood, or someone's face in Philadelphia. So. That act helped me become present to the details that I may have missed without looking through the viewfinder. But I also spent and still do spend a frustrating amount of time thinking about the subjective best way to frame this shot. Or if I'm making a video, does this video clip fit with all the other video clips? So that kind of takes me out of the enjoyable focus. So what was your experience of being present through 
and or in spite of shooting video during the hike? Uh, great, great question. Um, you know, I, the first day I started shooting on the trail, I remember being on top of Springer Mountain loading my camera and there were other people starting their 2000 mile journey uh, also on the summit of the mountain. And I, I immediately felt a little frustrated that, you know, I was so busy dealing with my film camera and getting it loaded properly that I didn't have, I didn't have the time to, to socialize with some of these people who were going to be, I was going to be sharing the trail with for the next six months. Mm. So I immediately realized that carrying the camera was going to interfere with some of my enjoyment of hiking the trail. Yeah, it's kind of like, wait up for me, and you're <laughs> fumbling with equipment. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can relate to what you said about, you know, being confined to that that rectangle um, of focus, wondering, am I getting the best shot here? And one thing I learned when I was a television cameraman before I hiked the trail um, was, you know, if you had the time, the best way to, to make a decision about that was basically to walk 360 degrees around the, the subject and even climb a tree if you had to, to get another angle of attack to try and look at every angle before, you know, deciding which one was the best and how can I connect these shots in editing. Um, on the trail, I, often I didn't have the luxury of having the time of doing a 360 around every subject. And, and basically the film that I shot was so expensive that I couldn't really afford to take more than one take. It had to be right on the first shot, mm. which got to be pretty difficult because my um, light meter started malfunctioning fairly early in the trip. And I was, I was left with uh, trying to basically estimate by eyeball, you know, the light level, the ambient light level and, and adjust the iris accordingly. Wow. So there was a lot of guesswork going on and I really had to get it right on the first take. Mm -hmm. and to be honest, I didn't always, I didn't always do that. I had a bunch of failures, um, which is pretty common in filming. I mean, most filmmakers will shoot maybe 15 to 20 times as much film as they actually use. And I think my ratio was, was about five to one. I, I shot about five times as much footage as I, as I use, which is a, an extremely low percentage. Yeah. So if it's a 28 minute film, that would be something like two and a half hours of footage. That's exactly right. It was right around two and a half hours of footage for, for the entire six months. And that's, that's really not very much film, but it was, it was actually more film than I could afford. Mm -hmm. Um, and related to, uh, this experience of being present through filmmaking, did you ever find that the need to document other hikers, like capturing the joy on their face when they're summiting Mount Katahdin, 
could enhance your experience or did it feel in competition with your experience? Well, in some ways it was in competition. Um, like the shots on top of Katahdin of some of my, uh, my fellow hikers finishing, um, I had, I had to ask them to wait below the summit while I rushed up to the top and I actually would finish my hike while I was scurrying around with the camera. I couldn't really enjoy that moment. Mm. So I basically had to get myself set and motion them forward to, to come up and finish their trip and react in whatever spontaneous way they were going to react while knowing that I had just achieved something myself <laughs> that, that, that I wanted to celebrate. So I had to delay my own celebration at the top there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because your personal sacrifice makes it worth it to these estimated 20 million viewers that you describe in the description. And, and nobody in the audience really cares what the filmmaker <laughs> went through. And, and to give you an example, um, when I was shooting film of uh, my hiking companions, fording the Kennebec River, which is uh, a, a big river in Maine that's about 100 yards wide with a fairly strong current. I, I basically had to get across the river first, and it was a very cold, day, cold windy day, and I, I lay down in the mud, cold, wet mud oh. on the riverbank, um, trying to set up my shot so that I could do a good job of recording my friends crossing the river. Mm -hmm. And I did some suffering just laying there shivering <laughs> while the, and trying to hold the camera still while they were crossing the river. <laughs> of course, nobody, nobody acknowledges that or even, you know, has any, any real knowledge that I, that I went through that. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of painful moments doing things like that, 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 um, you know, I, I rarely talk about, but, but they were, they were there. Well, we appreciate that you did them, Tim. Now that people know. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so did you stick with the seven hikers most of the way, or did you uh, lag behind or speed ahead and just meet each other by chance along the way? It was largely by chance. In fact, I started off with a couple of... Um, college seniors um who had who had started the appalachian trail as a as their senior project basically hmm. um and they they had trained and arranged logistics for a year and a half in advance of starting to hike the appalachian trail and the the conditions were so bad the first week we were on the trail they actually left on day six um, after doing all that that preparation and training. And I was left um, kind of at loose ends uh, having, having walked most of the state of Georgia with them. They left and, and I, I basically wasn't real sure how I was going to continue my filming effort. Um, but I kept on walking north uh, in the hopes that I'd meet other 
through hikers who, you know, were well-spoken and could add something to my film. Mm-hmm. And so it was only by chance that I, I ran into uh, a group of, of others, other hikers uh, in Virginia. Uh, we started to become a trail family or tramily as they say now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was left with piecing together the accounts of, instead of this couple that I had originally focused on, the thoughts and deeds of several other people in addition. And I think in the long run, opening up to, to a number of different perspectives may have added to the, the, the final film. Yeah, definitely. I want to get to some quotes later on, but the variety of their experiences and what they tell you through the film's narration is really great. So that leads into my next question of how did hiking the Appalachian Trail strengthen and or weaken your ability to trust yourself? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you know, I actually did undergo a transformation while I was hiking the trail in that regard, in that I I started to become, or I, I developed the ability to be more honest with myself. Yeah, I, I had actually left a, a, a girlfriend behind um when i started in georgia and she she was uh sending me supplies throughout the trip and we we had had some relationship difficulties even before i left and i had had basically not been real honest with myself about um how our relationship was going and Mm -hmm. During the course of the hike, um, I realized that that our our relationship had weakened so much that that it was by the time the trip ended, it was basically over. So mm-hmm. that was one way in which I started to become more honest, not only with myself but in in relating to other people um, instead of pretending to to laugh at somebody's joke. You know, I, I basically just react the way I, I felt I wanted to react, or, mm-hmm. or just the way I felt. So I, I, I became a more honest person. Mm-hmm. The, the trail, the trail really changed me that way. Mm-hmm. And so you gained some clarity on that this relationship was ending. By the end, did you feel like? after certain moments of being alone or with other people, it also clarified what kind of person you wanted to spend the rest of your life with? Well, it happened that in Western Massachusetts, I met a young woman who was caretaker of a, a cabin right on the Appalachian Trail. And I instantly realized that there was a a connection there um, that eventually 
blossomed into a romance and marriage, and we're currently living happily ever after. <laughs> In Vermont. Yeah. So... Well, that was in Mass. That was in Massachusetts. Oh, but currently living ha happily ever after in Vermont. Current, yeah, currently living in Vermont. Correct. Um, and I should explain to listeners how we know each other. My dad and Tim are old hiking and canoeing buddies, and my favorite fact about their relationship is that my parents were Tim and his wife's only wedding guests, partly because this wedding was on top of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Elizabeth and I were married on top of Mount Mansfield in Vermont, and we knew that we could not invite all our relatives uh, to access that part of the mountain because the trails were just too too strenuous to get up there mm -hmm. um so so we invited your father and and your mother uh to be witnesses to our our marriage on the on the summit there mm -hmm. yeah i was i didn't know it was mount mansfield but i was up there once and i remember it being so foggy so i don't know if that <laughs> wedding was very visible <laughs> yeah we we got married on a bad weather day and it, there was some question as to whether we might be struck by lightning <laughs> <laughs> uh, fortunately you know we got a little rain and some wind but but nothing else okay um and i want to try to do a part compliment uh part personal experience um that might be a little long-winded but i'm gonna give it a go so it's related to my relationship with my dad and your relationship with my dad there's this moment in your film north to katahdin when the viewer suddenly is inside of a bright pink flower and then you pull the camera back to show the entire plant. Do you know the moment I'm talking about? I do, yes. Mm -hmm. um, oh, were you going to say something? No, go okay. ahead. So this is really similar to something my dad describes that he loves to do. It's identical. He tells me sometimes that he loves putting his face inside of a flower and then closing his eyes for a few seconds and then opening and he's just flooded with pink yellow whatever color the flower is and I really smile when I hear this but part of my lingering immature teenage self almost doesn't believe that he does that <laughs> <laughs> um, because I get a little judgmental sometimes when I observe either my dad or my mom at home on their phones when I think they or we should be really trying to be present, like at a meal, for example. 
And putting your face inside a flower is such an indulgence in the present moment. And when I saw you do the same exact thing with your film, it kind of helped me snap out of my simplified perception of my dad to realize that his appreciation for small things is not a thing of the past in his young adult life, like going on adventures with you, but it's still very much a part of him in his daily life and hobbies like photography. Huh, you know, that's funny. I, <laughs> you can tell your dad that, that I also, I'm known to go out in the yard and, and do a face plant into a lilac blossom. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, in Vermont, after a long winter, we're so starved for that, for, for springtime that when it finally does come, you know, I don't want to let any moment go without, you know, a full immersion experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I like the fact that he closed his eyes and then opened them. I, I, I haven't tried that yet, but maybe I will try it next, next spring. Mm -hmm. It's similar to the harsh cuts of a film. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. So yeah, you're living in Vermont, you have for how many years? Since uh, 1986, we've been in Vermont. Okay. So how has hiking and living in Vermont since then shaped your experience of being indoors? Hmm. Yeah, my appreciation for being outdoors, I think, is is accentuated by living here, given that we spend so much of the winter indoors. Mm -hmm. From from mid November to some some years mid April, uh, we spend an awful lot of time indoors. You know, surfing the the web or or watching TV or listening to music or reading it you know we we absolutely can't wait for spring and up until covid started we would try and take a spring trip to somewhere warm every year but that's kind of gone by the boards in recent years which mm. is another factor you know helping to kick me out of the house i by the time spring comes i don't want to look at a computer or play another scrabble game uh, <laughs> even though you're like out. the champion of scrabble in vermont <laughs> well I, not anymore somebody else has has taken that crown okay um but but yeah um the value of just being outside and and going for a hike or, or playing golf or whatever whatever excuse i can get in the summertime to be outside i'll take it mm-hmm yeah, one hiker in the film mentions that you develop a balance when you're hiking the AT of your ideal amount of time uh, in the woods and in civilization. So he said his balance was 
quote, 10 days in the woods and one day in town. So what is your current balance? I guess not in the winter time because that is limited to inside. Yeah, I'd say my balance is about four days on the trail and one day in town, partly because the trails I've hiked since then, the uh, Continental Divide Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, generally have trail sections that are about four days long between resupply towns. Hmm. And and that seems to, to, to work pretty well. Okay. Are there visual flashes or smells or sounds from the 1984 hike that you're currently remembering most? And I mean the kind of memories that just come to you rather than intentional reflection. You know, for about three or four years after I finished the Appalachian Trail, I would I would experience flashbacks all the time. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's pretty much gone away. Uh, you know, over the years, I mean, it's, it's been 37 years since I did that hike, but it, the flashbacks were pretty intense and pretty happened pretty often. So much so that I, I had friends who would stop me in conversation and say, Tim, do you realize that every time I talk to you, you change the subject to the, to the AT, <laughs> um, you know, you might want to think about s- stopping that. Or, or, or trying something else there, because mm-hmm. yeah, you're you're kind of on a one on one track, just uh, changing the subject to the AT every time we yeah. see you. So, and that that sort of woke me up and and made me realize, gosh, I've got to stop doing that. Uh-huh. Have you heard of the book called Vagabonding by Rolf Potts? I have not. No. I just finished it and it's about how you can adapt your life to accommodate long-term world travel, um, taking long breaks from work and going overseas. And the last chapter was about coming home. And there are several accounts of long-term travelers who come home and return to their old friend group. And when they're having a conversation at a bar or a diner, they're saying all of these crazy adventures like, I went dancing with so-and-so, I ate spiced dog meat. (laughs) And everyone just kind of has a glazed look on their eye. And they're just like, cool, man. And then they start talking about the local happenings in town that just seem uh, not comparable, even though I think they are in some ways, but it sounds similar to your follow-up conversations. Yeah. You know, after after a long hike, you when you come home, everybody wants to hear how it was, but they really only want to hear the short version. Hmm. Um, and and what you want to do is you want to keep on talking for two hours about it. And you can see people's eyes glazed over when you go on too long. Mm-hmm. And you realize, 
you realize, you know, who I really want to talk to is the people I shared this trip with, because they're the only ones who really understand how much I need to talk about it and what I went through and how much suffering I did and how many fantastic, beautiful moments there were. And, and they also want to talk about it for, for hours at a time. Um, so you, you, you really have to come up with two different types of responses. One is the real brief one that has a good punchline. And, and the other one is you can talk about anything at all. The, the bad parts of the trip, the, the, the cold rain that, that made you miserable, mm-hmm. walking through snow, fording rivers that are freezing cold. Mm-hmm. being wet for a week at a time. Uh, yeah, you, people don't want to hear that beyond a few sentences, most people, but your your traveling companions, they really get it. And there's a bond there that can never be broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well... Is there any hiking excursion that you're planning now for next spring or summer? The only one I've got in the in the planning stage right now is the Northville Lake Placid Trail over in the Adirondacks. And that's a very different kind of trail than the trails I'm used to. Most of the trails I've done uh, involve a, a lot of uh, ridge walking or mountain peaks, uh, basically walking on top of the mountains rather than down in the lowlands. This Northville Lake Placid Trail is a lowland trail, uh, a sh- much shorter trail than something like the AT. It's only, oh, I think it's only 140 miles long. Um, But I've felt frustrated for years that I've lived close to the Adirondacks, but know almost nothing about them. Mm. And I I realized that, especially in COVID, you know, finding places to hike that are nearby is it's a good a a good way to get yourself out of the house and and um, enjoy some time outside. Yeah, we have a pennant in our cabin. Uh, that says Lake Placid, the Switzerland of America. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Wow, I, I I don't think that's real accurate, but it, 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 it sure makes it sound interesting. <laughs> yeah, they drew the mountains a little bigger for the graphic. Boy, you know, one of the places that really got me started on hiking in the first place was was actually Switzerland. Right after college, I took a train trip with some college classmates, and uh, one of them and I went to the Matterhorn in Switzerland and hiked part way up the Matterhorn Whoa. to to right to the point where the actual you know real mountain climbing starts, and and that that one day hike from the town of Zermatt, Switzerland up onto the Matterhorn and back that really uh, lit my imagination on fire as far as hiking is concerned. And I realized at that moment that even if I never made any money at all in my life, I, I could always hike because hiking, 
hiking is sort of egalitarian in that anybody can afford it. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew that this was something I could do my entire life. And, and that, that was kind of the kickoff to a lifetime of um, walking various trails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another part of this vagabonding book that's getting me thinking is how you can get yourself freedom without paying for it. So it sounds like hiking is definitely yours. It's true. Um, but I have to admit, as I've gotten older, it, it sure feels good to have the money when you get into town to go to a nice restaurant and and, and stay in a nice motel for a couple of nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so having money isn't a bad thing either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on it. i'm actually trying to move to germany in 2022 because i've been learning german for a while oh good for you why germany that's the language i chose and i have this interesting consistent experience of my mom bringing home a new score of antiques because she's an antique dealer and I fiddle through them and I gravitate towards one or two. And almost always when I flip that cup over, it says made in Germany. So there's something about the art and aesthetics of at least antique German objects and art that I'm really attracted to. So it's not like I'm moving to Germany because of that cup, but... I've made <laughs> I've made a lot of friends online because uh, I teach them English and they, they teach me German through video chat. So it's a really cool exchange. Um, yeah, and I just want an international experience. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, well, I encourage you to uh, chase that dream because um, th- that could really open some doors for you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking, Tim. That was really fun. Thanks for inviting me. I feel honored that you uh, included me in your podcast. Of course. Now you're another frog. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of the idea behind the name Cafe Ribbit. Because when I'm walking around the lake at our cabin in the springtime, I just hear tens of thousands of peepers. And it feels like a microcosm or a miniature version of the world that I can walk around and hear all the people talking at once. I can relate because we have a a marsh close to our house with tens of thousands of peepers that are deafening in the spring. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a real trip listening to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to close it out with some peeper sound effects. So thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. Please comment on the Cafe Ribbit blog post if you have any thoughts about the interview or if you also have some answers to the general questions that I asked Tim. 
find that link to the blog post in the podcast description. And if you would like to receive more interviews like this in your email, along with original food recipes and artwork, you can subscribe your email address at caferibbit.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page. All right.